Jake, what is Tim Keller like in person? <laughs> Not no. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Simply Faithful, a place for Christian conversations without the hype. We're here to discuss life, faith, and ministry with each other and with other interesting people. Our desire is to save you a place around the table with us. Here at Simply Faithful, we're hoping to begin conversations about Christianity that continue in your friendships and your lives. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Simply Faithful. We're glad that you've joined us today. My name is Gray. I am a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona at New Valley Church in downtown Phoenix. And I'm Eric. I pastor a church near Rockford, Illinois. Today we have a special episode for you. We're sitting down with Jake Meter, and I will read the official bio first for Jake. Jake, we're glad that you're here. But Jake is vice president of the Davenant Institute and editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy, an online magazine covering Christian faith in the public sphere. Jake is also the editor at Fair Forward. His work has been published in First Things, National Review, Books and Culture, Christianity Today, Front Porch Republic, and the University Bookman. And he lives with Joey, his wife, in Lincoln, Nebraska. And that's the official bio, but we go back a long ways with our brother Jake. So Eric and Jake and myself, I've all been friends and in the same group of friends for a long time. And to just set the scene a little bit for you, we're in rural Illinois in a little place called Oregon, Illinois, recording this part of a group that meets every year as good friends. So we all went to the University of Nebraska together. And so we've known Jake for a long time, even before he was a star. And uh, so Jake, we're very glad to have you today. Thanks for having me. wanted to start out today with just your basic argument for the book. I should name the title of the book as well, since I just read the bio before, but the book is called In Search of the Common Good, Christian Fidelity in a Fractured World. And so we wanted to ask you, first of all, why this book? Why did you choose to do this? And give us like the 30 second elevator pitch of what the book's about. Yeah. So the the start of the book was the experience of reading at the same time books that were very concerned about the future of Christianity in America. So Rogers, Benedict Option, Anthony Eslin's Out of the Ashes, a number of other books. At the same time that I was reading The Unwinding by George Packer, Hillbilly Elegy by Vance, although that was a little later, um, Our Kids by Putnam, Coming Apart, Charles Murray, lots of different books that are being published at the same time as these kind of Christ- like concerns about Christian Christianity in the U.S., existing alongside these concerns about civil society in the U.S. And so I started to see those two problems as being interconnected in that there is a loss of membership and kind of relational belonging, various small communities in the U.S., which in turn creates lots of social problems, um, mental health issues, isolation, economic, like all of these things kind of get wrapped together. There's a line Pope Benedict has about how the book of nature is indivisible. All of these things are kind of wound together in various ways because of the way the world is made to work and it's all interconnected. So as I was working on it, I was just realizing you can't talk about the decline of the church apart from these questions about civil decline. And that was something that I hadn't seen as much in the books I was reading. So that was the start. I think the 30 second elevator pitch is 
um, how can Christians be good neighbors in a fragmenting society where statistically half the people you meet on a day-to-day basis, if, if the study from last year is accurate, half the people you meet on a day-to-day basis would say they don't have personally significant conversations. So that's a question. How are we good neighbors in a place like that where about two-thirds of Americans are disengaged at work, which means they don't like their job, they aren't like drawing any kind of satisfaction from it personally, they're not emotionally invested in what they're doing. That's to say nothing of the economic insecurity a lot of Americans have. So that's the world we live in. There's lots of woundedness, there's a sense of kind of being an orphan for a lot of people, I think. And so one of the prime questions for Christians, I think, has to be how are we good neighbors in a world like that? So that's what I was trying to talk about in the book. So it's a great book. And what we're going to do here then within the context of that is not make you summarize every chapter of the book, because if that sounds like an overarching discussion that people want to participate in and hear about, what they need to do is go buy the book. But what I do want to do... We will have a link in the show notes for you to go buy the book as well. But what I do want to do is kind of take a couple of different things that you said in the book or points that you made that we thought were interesting and just maybe have some conversations about that. Hear your thoughts expanding on that a little more, maybe have some back and forth. And the first one that I was thinking about, the book really kind of divides into the first part is about the problem, both within American society and within the church. And then the second half is about a set of proposals and solutions to try to help fighting against that. And... I want to dwell mostly on the second half within our discussion here, but one provocative claim you made in the first half is that you talk about all of these issues within American Christianity, and then you say, far from being evidence of our movement's failure, the current state of American Christianity is proof that our movement has succeeded spectacularly, if by succeed we mean done what it was intended to do. Which is to say that from the church end of our issues... One of the problems we have is not so much that the American church has failed at what it set out to do, but that what it was setting out to do to begin with was flawed in some significant ways. And I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about what things you think are in play there and what what lie behind that kind of observation. Yeah. So the observation is taken from a um, Notre Dame theologian named Emmanuel Katongale, who has a number of books that are worth reading. Um, I kind of borrowed the idea from him and applied it to the church in the U.S. There's a a couple aspects to it. So one is that even, this was a study my pastor actually flagged for me, it was done in I think 05 or 06 by Barna, where they polled evangelicals along, I think it was nine questions that are extremely basic questions of Christian faith. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Um, Do you try to live your life according to the teachings of Scripture? Is your personal walk with Christ an important part of your life? Like, these are super basic questions. And Barna's study found that only one in six evangelicals answered in the affirming on all nine questions. So it was this weird thing where evangelicalism or evangelical functioned as this kind of sociological label for a large number of Americans, about 35% of Americans at its peak during the George W. Bush years. And this drove lots of fear on the American left. So if you go back and look at media coverage 15 years ago, there's all of these kind of looming theocracy books coming out. And at the same time that we had all that fear about what the American Christians were going to do to turn this country into a theocracy, 
functionally speaking, only about a sixth of those sociological evangelicals were convictionally evangelical in how they thought about their faith and the world and the relationship between them. And so it, it just suggests a pretty abysmal failure of catechesis for a long time that's been going on in the church. And I think you could relatedly see the degree to which a lot of public worship sidelines the preaching of the word and administration of the supper, um, even today, as being a failure. And then you have to ask, okay, if it's not, if the public worship service is not built around word and table, what is it built around? I think it's been built around church growth, and it's been church growth facilitated through some pretty sloppy attempts to contextualize the faith. And a lot of things vital to the practice of the faith and the passing on of the faith have gotten sidelined as we've been chasing bigger churches and more cultural prestige, uh, more political power and security through an alliance with the GOP, all of these things. And so we, we've gained power. We have very large churches. Those things are all true. What we don't seem to have are people who know the faith, know what Christians believe, even on the basic level Barnett was talking about. But you're arguing that that was a sort of, maybe not a conscious decision, but a decision in many ways that evangelicals made, that Mm -hmm. we were given a choice between having cultural power and institutional wealth and size, and then making disciples and doing the the work of actually building the kingdom in this biblical Christ-like way. And we made a bunch of choices that was really to choose the first rather Mm -hmm. than the second. And so a lot of the struggles within the church are not because of some external threat or set of issues solely, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. that a lot of those struggles within the church are there because we failed. We we chose not to pursue the mission that we were supposed to pursue decades ago. Yes. Is that a fair kind Mm -hmm. of... So you spend a lot of time in the book, the first half of it, the more depressing half, we might say, (laughs) um, because the chapters of those are loss of meaning, loss of wonder, I think it is, and then Mm -hmm. loss of good work. And so there's a lot of loss going on there. And you paint a pretty bleak picture of what, you know, American society, how it's trending. And then the second half of the book is about, you know, the the solutions, the remedies. And you have a little midsection in there that was actually my favorite part of the book, actually, uh, one of my favorite parts of the book, where you talk about just our, our basic, our basic approach to the problem. So is 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 this this complex problem does it need a set of complex solutions right so mm-hmm. i've i've just given this huge um you know picture of of how wrong things are and then my solutions you say are going to be pretty basic you know when you look at them mm-hmm. so describe why these complex problems don't need a mechan- mechanistic kind of complex solution I think one of the one of the things we're coming out of right now, I hope we're coming out of it, is just this era of major revolution after major revolution after major revolution. You could date it back to the American Revolution, I suppose, certainly the French Revolution, and just work onward. And just massive amounts of upheaval in political life, economic life, social life, repeatedly over the last few hundred years in ways that I think make it hard for people to have a stable sense of identity, stable friend group. And to some extent, that kind of instability is just baked into living as a finite creature in a cursed world. 
but we also exacerbate it in the choices that we make. And so my fear is that uh, these kind of revolutionary solutions, they almost always end up being the kind of equivalent of using the sledgehammer to pound in the really tiny nail. And it's just, yeah, you, you pounded the nail in, good job. You also broke a bunch of crap because you used the wrong tool to fix the problem. Um, and I think that's often how revolutionary kind of instincts work is they're too ambitious and <coughs> they are too disconnected from the kind of ordinary day-to-day things that make life delightful for people and allow communities to coexist together. And I, I think often they end up, they're all, there's almost a sense in which they're kind of doubling down on the problem. Because the problem got created by some previous revolution, and now we're going to fix it with a new revolution. And it just creates greater and greater and greater instability. Is it fair to say that part of your argument is that a lot of the problems we have are really the problems of modernism, like as a way of thinking, as a, as a worldview, and that the church, in part from what we said earlier, has kind of imbibed of that. But modernism mm-hmm. is all about these sweeping, scientific, systematic mm-hmm. solutions to try to fix all the world's problems. And what tends to happen is that that mm-hmm. then creates more problems for the world right. as we implement it. And that if the church falls prey to that thinking, what we'll do is we'll keep coming up with these new, mm-hmm. radically different ways of doing Christianity that actually won't address the underlying problems because we're still operating in that kind of rationalistic yeah. Yeah, I would say so. And I think that the important thing to say is that it does not follow from that. Therefore, all things modern are bad and we must go back to the 17th century because that is silly and that's not what I'm arguing for. Um, What I'm wanting to argue for is that a lot of the things that people like when a lot of people think about modernity um, or modern life or modern technology, our attention is drawn to the various things that about it that have made our lives easier, that have genuine, genuinely made our lives better um, in many wonderful ways. The point I would want to make is all of these things have come with trade-offs, and often we've not been attentive to the trade-offs, with the effect being that if we had thought about the trade-off, maybe there are ways we can still obtain that good, but not have as many problems by extension but we don't think about that. And so we just run headlong into this new good. Um, so one example that I talk about in one of the chapters about how when we moved into an industrial era in terms of how we worked, that had the unintended consequence of weakening the home. Because prior to that, the household had been economically productive and secure in itself. And there were problems with that model, but it created an integrated life around the home. And what ended up happening is first the man gets liberated, quote unquote, from the home. And then it's just a matter of time before the woman also gets liberated from the home. And now suddenly our homes are basically these kind of storage hubs and consumption centers. And those are, that's not really a a fun place. Like you you don't really want to hang out in a storage shed. And yet that is what we've kind of made of our homes to a large extent because of the way that we've changed how we work and the relationship between work and home. It doesn't necessarily follow from that, that we now like abolish all things industrial and everybody has to go back to being a home-based entrepreneur. But I think it does follow that, okay, we're making these social changes that weaken 
a pretty significant aspect of home life, we need to identify ways to try and mitigate that damage. And repeatedly with these major social changes, we've not done that part of the work. We've just dove headlong into the new thing. You could say the same thing, like think about the kind of origin myth of church growth and seeker sensitive in America. It's Bill Hybels going around doing market research in his neighborhood about what kind of church people want. It's not necessarily a bad thing to talk to people about that. The gospel has to be communicated in a way that is sensible to people in every time and place. And we see that actually happening in the book of Acts. If you look at the different types of sermons Paul gives to different people he's talking to. But when you just go hard, like all in on market research and you lose track of just basic traditional liturgical practices and things like that, you again get this dramatic swing that does do certain things, but also does do certain good things, also does all kinds of bad things. And if you don't account for them, then you just have this huge problem on your hands. So I think you see that in a lot of places. I do want to move to the solutions that you give, the simple solutions that are <laughs> you know hard to integrate. Uh, but one more question while we stay on this line of, of thought. You mentioned in the book... Uh, a biblical argument for this, and we could bring that in that, you know, for instance, when Israel is in exile in mm-hmm. Babylon, the, the instructions that God gives Israel are of a basic nature, even though all the problems that got them there are over mm-hmm. centuries. So mm-hmm. my question is, and if, if you don't remember in Jeremiah 29, it talks about God saying, while you're in Babylon, you should seek the prosperity of the city, you should plant gardens, you should do all these basic things and be the people of God where you are. My question is, to what extent is this a human problem that goes back for however long to, to the creation or to the fall? And to what extent is it an American modern problem that we have? The reluctance to like accept smaller solutions to big problems, you mean? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's it probably is something that is just a general temptation that certain people will have in a sin-cursed world. You can think about scriptural warnings against vanity, I think, as being something that would relate to this. Mm. Or I suppose the parable of the rich landowner who stores up all this grain for himself and has all these plans for it, and Christ says, you fool, you're going to die tonight. So yeah, I think there probably is always a temptation to dream big Mm. for certain people isn't that in some ways what the foundational and you can be like a god temptation is that Mm -hmm. rather than being a creature in a kind of limited Mm -hmm. way you think that you can fix the world rather than simply being faithful let me ask you this then because i do want to transition to your solutions and what i don't think we need to do is dig really deep into each one because again in many ways they should just go read the book if people have questions about that But you suggest that there's three particular individual practices that people need to reclaim as Christians if we're going to be able to be formed in these ways to be good neighbors and be a part Mm -hmm. of this good society. They're Sabbath and Sabbath rest and worship. They are what you call the membership, which is Mm -hmm. sort of a way of talking about community, Mm -hmm. but reframing it just because that word has a lot of baggage and a lot of different meanings. Mm -hmm. And then work and meaningful work and Mm -hmm. a different way of thinking about work. And what I'd maybe like you to do just so we can discuss them first is just in a brief way, can you just talk through how a person who lived into those three things and the ways you envision them, how they would look different and move through the world differently than most people in our modern world live? Yeah. 
So to start out, the three things are just drawing on what are the three parts of human life that are normal before the fall. So they're not intended to just be three like random grab bag things. I thought like I think it's actually in the biblical text. Um, if you look before the fall, God places Adam and Eve together. There's your community. And that presumably would have matured into larger community in the garden had they not sinned. He gives them work to do in the garden, and he tells them to rest on the seventh day. So there's community, there's work, there's Sabbath right there in the creation account. In terms of how it looks different, so I would say to begin with Sabbath, it's a certain, like, just to begin, I think it's committing yourself to the public worship, public worship with God's people um, one day a week on the day of rest. But also um, just treating that day as a day to be reminded of your ultimate end as a human being, that you're ordered toward, not just toward the like physical world around us, but the world of time ultimately made to know God. And Sabbath can remind you of that by reminding you of your mortality, by imposing this time-based ritual in your life. In terms of membership, I think it means recognizing that lots of the communities that we are part of are not these negligible, voluntaristic things that we just kind of take up when it suits us and set aside when it suits us, but that these small local communities are one of the main things that makes life delightful. And so there's a certain obligation we have to them that would curb many of our ambitions, particularly in professional life, I think. You think about what is required to succeed, succeed in air quote or scare quotes, I think. Um, it requires a certain indifference to family and to place in a lot of cases. And I think we have to resist that. There's a story I tell in the book of a friend whose faculty advisor told him he shouldn't get married while he was doing his undergrad because it would be bad for his career. Well, that's foregrounding career in a way that I think is really unhealthy. And so I think there's a, a, we need to recover the idea that there are communal and relational obligations we have that are natural, which is to say they're not things whose force on us comes from our choosing, but comes from the nature of reality and how God made the world to work. Um, and then with work, I think to whatever extent we're able, trying to disconnect the idea of good work or get rid of the necessary connection that a lot of people think exists between the idea of good work and the marketplace. A lot of people, they will fulfill their vocation, do their work within the marketplace, and that's fine. We need that. But I think because of all the things we've talked about, there can be a pressure that a lot of people feel where if I'm not working a conventional job in the marketplace, who am I? And that's a, not a Christian idea of work to begin with. And so one of the examples I use in the book um, is a couple that I think we all know, actually, where the wife makes a very good living in her job such that their kids are out of the house. The husband does not need to hold down a job for them to pay their bills and get by month to month. And so the husband doesn't work a job that they don't need because of that. He also doesn't just sit around and watch TV all day. He actually helps run a food distribution ministry. He helps with youth sports. He serves on a lot of neighborhood boards and committees. And he's able to do that because he's able to see there's actually lots of good work that needs to be done in my place that is not recognized for one reason or another by the market. 
but I don't need to be recognized by the market because financially we're secure. And so I don't need to have any relationship in my own personal work to the market. And so I can go out and do all this necessary work in the neighborhood for the good of my neighbor to serve the city. And that is good work. I think that's fulfilling a, a vocation. I think that's fulfilling the call um, we're given in Genesis to have dominion over the earth. And yet it's not something that is going to be measurable in employment data. It's not something that is generating tax revenue for the city, but it's good work that serves the life of the local place. So those would be the three thoughts. I'm curious as you speak about those things, what your feeling is towards like optimism or pessimism towards, you know, America in, mm-hmm. in implementing those things. So I, I think I can at least envision those three things working together well and returning back to a place where basically pre-fall, you know, and that is the new city that we're going mm-hmm. to. But what are your prospects for America in this? Like if everybody just took up your your call here, <laughs> your clarion call and followed this, I mean, do you see a lot of optimism here for America or do you see it getting worse before it gets better or... Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think the last several years have made me very reluctant to try and predict those kind of things. Also, I was a history major in my undergrad, and so I've, I've seen other moments in history that turn on unexpected things. I heard Ross that say once that Christians of all people should not be shocked at unexpected resurrection. Hmm. So the optimist-pessimist question is a hard one. I think if, if we're just looking at social science data... Um, and economic data, there's a lot of reasons to be pessimistic. But I'm not sure what what I would even do with that as kind of an orientation of my heart toward the world. It might, might just be a mechanistic solution to a... <laughs> well, I, I think what yeah. we're called to is to hope. And ultimately to hope in Christ, his work on our behalf, his interceding on our behalf, um, the Spirit working in our hearts to... Um, transform us into the people that God calls us to be and to transform us into the kind of neighbors that shape the world in the way God intends it to be. And so I think that the primary posture can't be optimism or pessimism, but has to be hope. And hope can be harder to hold to, or it can be easier to hold to, which is where the optimist-pessimist thing probably would come in. But I, I do think when you're an optimist, you easily slide into an excessive idea of your own importance in the world, um, which is just vanity and pride. Uh, When you're a pessimist, you can easily slide into basically the sin of unbelief, not really believing that God is at work, not really believing that God is working out his purposes in the world. And so I, I worry about both of those orientations almost in equal measure, and I'm much more comfortable just talking about the call to be hopeful. I've often felt like the whole that whole discussion about how should we feel and should we be optimistic or pessimistic, it slips into kind of the same trap that got us here in the first place, which is this sort of utilitarian results-based way of thinking about our actions, mm-hmm. where what I would say is that Christians are called to be a faithful community. And I am hopeful that as we live as a faithful community, that will have effects on the world around us. But we do not judge our faithfulness, and we do not alter what faithfulness means based on trying to get certain results in the world. Right. And one of the great dangers of modernity in general is that it tends to say not what is virtuous, what is good, what is faithful, but simply what gets the 
results that we've desired. And there's two problems with that. One is that anyone who thinks they can actually, like the, the problem with utilitarianism <laughs> is anyone who thinks they can actually predict the outcomes of actions just does not understand the chaotic, complicated mm-hmm. nature of the world that we live in. But the second one is that as we pursue that course, what tends to happen is that we compromise virtue in order to get the outcomes that we want. But then that compromised virtue actually causes us to desire worse outcomes or not as good of outcomes. And over time, our whole like vision of what a good life in the world looks like and what a faithful, godly life in the world looks like gets warped. And I often think that's part of why things like American evangelicalism have gotten kind of messed up in terms of the ends that they're pursuing is that we lost Mm -hmm. virtue a long time ago and we lost a sort of discipled faithfulness a long time ago. And so naturally, power and prestige and influence and these things that we're not as Christians supposed to be seeking to rest for ourselves have become the things we're pursuing. Yeah, I'm reading a book right now called Unbelief and Revolution by a Dutch formed Christian named Groen von Prinsterer, who is mid-19th century. What he means by the revolution is the belief that governments are essentially created by the will of a large enough group. And that's the revolution that he sees as being a, a defining problem of the modern West, is this wrong idea we have about the nature of government. But then the thing he says is that once you have that idea where government is essentially a creation of the will, all that you're left with is power. And it can be power used by the masses to basically create anarchy, or it can be power used by those in like in positions of influence to create tyranny, But you've already defined the game in such a way that the only real agent that changes anything one way or the other is power. And once you've made that move, you've kind of already lost, regardless of what happens afterwards. Right. Regardless of whether Christians are in power Mm -hmm. or secular people are in power or whatever. Put an end cap on that discussion, though, to, I mean, we're all believing in the final outcome, right? Which is the new new heavens and the new earth. So there is optimism in the largest scale, which we all agree with. and. But we also agree that reaping and sowing happen in different ways in different parts of the world throughout history. But having the end of that story secure is really what frees us as Christians from needing hope. the next page to go a certain right. way. Correct. Yes. Well, there's a, a story. I, I If I ever got a blank check to write a book, this is, I think, the book I would want to do. It was early years of the Reformation in Europe. And so it's 1531, and Zwingli is dead. Zwingli is kind of top lieutenant, um, Oikolampadius, is also dead. Um, John Calvin is not in the picture at all. He's a law student in Paris at this point, who I don't even think has had his conversion experience yet. And so there's this very real question in southern Germany and Switzerland if the Reformation's even going to survive, because the leadership is gone. Um, And the only city that is in a position to kind of assume command is Strasbourg. And Strasbourg is the South German city that's very precarious because it's super close to the very Catholic Holy Roman Emperor. And it's very precarious because it has such broad religious toleration that there's lots of other groups coming into the city. And you can read the letters of the pastors in Strasbourg at this time, and they're just despondent. And a lot of them seem to think that the Reformation is just going to die and they're all like, we're all going to be Lutherans or Catholics within a very short time. And then without getting into the full story, a number of kind of unexpected things happen. And Strasbourg survives and things kind of stabilize 
a successor to Zwingli unexpectedly emerges in Zurich. And within eight years of this, a young French pastor washes up in Strasbourg, Calvin, and he's mentored there for several years before he goes back to Geneva and then does much of the work he's now known for. The thing that made it even possible for Calvin to show up in Strasbourg in the first place was utterly unexpected, only eight years before. And then a number of surprising things happened, and today we don't know any of this because we just know how the story ended, and we don't know about all the uncertainty in the middle. And so I think it's a reminder to be cautious in our prognostications about the future for good or ill, and to try to be faithful in the ways that God calls us to where he's put us, because we don't know what God will do with that. Let me ask you one last question, which kind of goes beyond the book, but is something that as I read it, I found myself thinking about to see if you have any thoughts. What you describe is a good biblical kind of image of a lot of ways that people should live differently, but it's also radically countercultural. It's very, very different from just even the way most people would picture the possibilities of life playing out. One of the things that I often find myself reflecting on is the fact that in order for somebody to embrace that different way of living, they really need to be discipled and brought to a place where they understand that even just that they even understand what they don't understand. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you have that, but then one of the challenges is that a lot of the problems you identify about modernity are particular challenges to that kind of discipleship, the sort of consumerist mentality Mm -hmm. with, with which people engage the church and the way that they're very disconnected from community. Mm-hmm. I think one of the main ways people were discipled historically is just by living overlapping connected mm-hmm. lives yeah, and yeah. community and just seeing, right. seeing these things. So as I think about how do I shepherd people in a way that, you know, I look at my congregation and some of them are engaged disciples who are really seeking to grow and follow Jesus, but a number of them aren't and also just don't really even realize maybe that they aren't. What are some ways that you can help those people understand this different way of living and thinking about Christianity and faithfulness so that they can even start to live in those countercultural ways? So I think a large part of it is going back to the various problems that are in the second chapter of the book. I don't know that a lot of lay Christians would identify like, yeah, I need a stronger practice of the Sabbath to deal with some of these like <laughs> feelings of wandering aimlessness that I'm experiencing in life. I don't think that, but I do think a lot of people have that experience of feeling like I don't really know what I'm, I know in a certain sense, I'm following this script that was handed to me. If you go to college and then you chase a job, but at least when I look at a lot of the social data on it, it doesn't seem like that's working out for very many people. There's a line, a Catholic friend of mine has in a column he wrote where he's writing about this, show with this religious figure who is very young but very like surprisingly conservative and this figure says to him you you surprise me you're so young and your opinions are so old and this guy who actually is an orphan his response is you are wrong i am an orphan and orphans are never young i think for a lot of people there there is there are obviously literal orphans but i think there's also a sense of lots of people who have aspects of being an orphan in the world that we've created because they don't know where their family comes from. A lot of them did not grow up with both of their parents. Um, Statistically at this point in the U S more people actually grow up in some arrangement other than living with both of their biological parents than grow up living with their biological parents. And so I think that that's the on-ramp for 
beginning a lot of these conversations is, okay, this is where we are. What are things we can do to start changing that? And so you mean like, kind of like fostering and encouraging the discontent that people feel and naming it for them as the starting place? Um, I wouldn't say fostering, but I, I do think naming. One of the things I'm trying to do in the book, particularly in chapter three, and this is a frustration I have with a lot of the way conservative evangelicals that I read talk about kind of Christian's relationship to the U.S., is I want to say like, no, there are baseline beliefs that are deep in our culture and deep in our churches that make the good life very difficult to obtain. And so I do think naming those beliefs is a starting point because then it provides people a way of trying to kind of name what they're feeling and organizing it in their own mind um, such that it maybe will not seem as weird to then say, we should just start having people over after church on Sundays and just plan on making Sunday a day for being with people from church or people from our neighborhood that we want to get to know better. Because you're right, a lot of this did happen traditionally through overlapping daily routines. And today, the average American commute to church is 15 minutes. So we don't live close to each other in those ways anymore. And getting to where we were would be a huge thing to overcome. But you could get to where like, it's just normal that a good chunk of our Sundays we're spending together in relatively informal contexts where relationships can develop, conversations can be had, you can just do fun things together and build trust that allow you to then start having a more kind of connected um, life at, within your church or within your neighborhood, such that you, at minimum, maybe you don't have the story of that 50% of Americans in the Cigna study who say they don't have significant conversations on a daily basis because you have enough relationships if something really bad happens at work, you actually have someone you can call and talk to. And that can seem small, but I think just the security that comes from something like that is a start. In the spirit of what, of the vein we've been talking in as well, you can always start very small, right, <laughs> in your church. So we don't need a solution for the whole church necessarily. Maybe the solution <laughs> is for three people who might be more receptive to this way <laughs> of life and starting with that and that oh, yeah. grow from yeah. there. I think we're going to leave it there for now. And thank you so much, Jake, for, for your time today. We have a, a section at the end of the show every week called What's Good, where we talk about something that, that is good, true, and beautiful for the Christian life. And it doesn't necessarily mean to be a Christian thing, but we are enjoying God's good gifts of books and music and poetry, and et cetera, et cetera. So our audience hears from us all the time on these things. We want to turn it to you. What has been good for you? Maybe this is silly. I've enjoyed, Eric, you brought a game to our little retreat this weekend called men at work that i've just really enjoyed playing while we've been out here because it's just a very low pressure low stress game that goes quick is pretty easy to explain but is a lot of fun and so that was really enjoyable i mean you more than anyone else i know can build that kind of simple local community in a house with fun games board games so men at work you, is a great game it's a dexterity yeah. game meaning that you're building yes. and moving stuff and it's not rolling dice or doing math or any of those things. Yeah. Another game that's similar to it is junk art. And both of them I found to be very good in different settings mm -hmm. at being something that pretty much everyone can engage in. And everyone is not actually very good at because right. it's very hard to have a particular <laughs> skill at stacking little blocks and people and things. Yeah. And so you can all kind of share together in your ineptitude. And there, there's a sense in which that makes laughter easier. Like there was one point yesterday, one of the guys here 
was kind of reaching for the stars and basically destroyed the entire structure <laughs> and the entire table just burst out laughing. So I think though I it's a, it seems silly, but just those kind of things that make it less intimidating to hang out with a group of people and make it easier to laugh and have fun in a group can be really powerful. We'll link to both of those uh, games that we mentioned in the show notes for you. Jake, we really appreciate you taking the time. I know I speak for Eric and myself that we value your friendship and it's been great to know you for these, what, 13 years or so. And we're uh, proud of your work here. So thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoyed the discussion, there's a few things you can do to help us out. Most importantly, we would love for you to keep this conversation going. Please grab a friend, somebody that you would like to talk to more about this, share this podcast with them, ask them what they think, and keep that conversation going. Also do visit us online, simplyfaithful.org. And on Facebook, you can search Simply Faithful. We'll pop right up. Twitter, at Faithful Podcast. If you share something there that's especially helpful, we might even talk about it in an upcoming episode. We also would really appreciate it if you would rate us on your podcast marketplace of choice, and especially if you would share it with a friend who might enjoy it. The only way that more people will be added to this conversation is if you tell them about it and ask them to join in. Sounds good. Until next time, I'm Gray. I'm Eric, and this has been Simply Faithful. Simply Faithful.